you're looking for one of the most beautiful and playable custom acoustics on the planet, look no further than Ed Rice at Toeir Guitars. Ed is a true artist, transforming exotic woods into magnificent, sweet-sounding instruments. Go to toeirguitars.us, that's T-O-I-R-G-U-I-T-A-R-S.us, and contact Ed today. Hey everybody, Brad and I want to say thank you for listening and thank you for the support. Please continue to listen and share this podcast on all platforms that you can. And if you'd like to support us monthly, we're set up now where you can go to anchor.fm slash Recording, hit the support button, 99 cents, $4.99 or $9.99 per month. Any amount would be greatly appreciated. Now back to the podcast. Top Hill Recording Podcast, episode 132. What's up, Neil? What's up, buddy? How are you today? So today's your off day. You've been out playing tennis with the wife, huh? Yeah, man. So did you win or did you get it? Oh, she was terrible today. <laughs> <laughs> she was terrible. And not that we're either of us are any good at all, but God, dude, she, it was by far. And well, We went and ate a big breakfast after uh, we did a little bit of work on this house she's selling. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we went and ate a big breakfast. That was the key. I got her so full, I think it like crossed her eyes a little bit. So she was just, yeah, she was off. So now you got your strategy. Yep. We've got another great guest tonight. We've got oh, Jack man. J. Hutchinson with yes. us tonight. So welcome, Jack. Hey, guys. How you doing? Doing great, We're doing man. well, man. And Jack's coming to us from uh, London. Are, are you in London now? Yeah, just north of London, yeah. So uh, I think okay. it's uh, your early afternoon there, right? And I'm I'm like six o'clock here, so it's different. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're... We're actually having an early bourbon. We're having a Four Roses single barrel. So cheers, Neil. Yeah, man. This is our 1 p.m. drink. This is our afternoon cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I'm going to do some singing after this. I need this bourbon. Yeah, we got a, we got some songs of Neil's. We recorded Jack, and uh, we just did some scratch vocals when the full band was here. So after we get done with the podcast, we're going to put Neil on the microphone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing, man. I, I found that in the past, yeah, having some bourbon is the best way to do your uh, vocal warm-ups, you know. None of that steaming and that sort of stuff that some no. people this do. Come on. <laughs> Come on. We're going to have Neil That's in there dancing. Anyway. We're going to have him dancing while he's singing and everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> well, Jack, why don't you start us off? Why don't you take us back to childhood and share with us some of your early memories of music? And then, uh, you know, maybe when you realized music was going to be uh, a big part of what you did in life. Yeah, man. So I suppose um, when I was a kid, uh, my dad and my mom were were big music fans and they were always playing particularly like the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. My dad was a big Stones fan and, um, you know, was always playing stuff like Exile on Main Street. And so that kind of seeped into my consciousness from an early age. And, um, you know, my mum was a big pop fan, so she listened to a lot of stuff like the Beatles, but she also really liked Motown and that kind of stuff. So I had a, I had quite cool parents who were mm, kind of yeah. uh, indoctrinating me in, in good music from an early age. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 I suppose when I got into guitar music really was, um, after I, I went to guitar lessons and I think it was something that my dad signed me up for to keep me out of trouble 
and prevent me sort of roaming the streets in the in the northwest of England. I lived in this town <laughs> called Burnley, and I I think uh, I, I I've got this vivid memory of uh, putting fireworks in a dustbin, and then after that, that was it. I was like not allowed out, <laughs> not allowed out for a bit. But um, I hated guitar lessons. Actually, I was taught to play uh. classical guitar and I it was like the worst thing I wanted to be outside playing football and being with my mates and uh, it was really after I pleaded with my mum to cancel the guitar lessons that I then started to really get into it and the freedom to discover music became this really important thing for me and uh, the, mm. the biggest band around that period was uh, for me Led Zeppelin I, I'd got into Zepp and um, oh, yeah. that was like wow, that it began this journey of discovery where I was getting into all this different music. And like lots of people do is that they start tracing the lineage and going back to, you know, Muddy Waters and John Lee Hooker and all the blues guys. So that was kind of how I got into music initially. Yeah. Mm. When you were doing the classical training, um, what did that look like? Was it after after school you had to come home and 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 do, was it daily or was it once a week? And then you had practice time that you were forced to do. How, how, what was the structure of that for you? Well, it was on Monday evenings, and I think it was half past six until half seven. So it was only an hour a week. But the homework, man, I I just hated it. And I I remember having this sort of like sick feeling going to the uh, the, <laughs> the the lessons because I'd never did my homework. So I just hated the music, and so I was like. Um, you know, it's, diff- it's difficult when you're sort of listening to all of this classical stuff, but your dad's got like wild horses playing out and mm-hmm. he's like, well, I'd much rather be playing along <laughs> with that stuff. So um, I'd, I'd like to profess that learning that classical stuff um, set me on the road to a kind of Randy Rhodes level of guitar playing that was uh, kind of rooted in that really technical element. But uh, actually I just resorted to wanting to be Keith Richards for a few years. So I don't think there's anything wrong with that though. But <laughs> <laughs> well, you know the, the classical guitar is such a crazy bass was it all fingerstyle stuff that you were working on at that time too yeah man and I actually quite enjoyed the fingerstyle stuff but it was I just couldn't get my head around it it's about 10 years later when I was uh, I went to art college and I was I went through this whole kind of jazz phase where I was really into Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane and all this stuff. Uh-huh, okay. looking, looking back, I think I was just a p- p- pretentious uh, dude. <laughs> and I, I, was, I was never able to uh, to play that stuff. I just was never technically proficient enough to be able to do it. But yeah, the classical stuff, I think what, what it did was it taught me what I didn't want to do. And so when I discovered rock and roll, and I guess I was only about maybe 13, 14 when I set up my first band. and um, you know, we used to play in some pretty rough bars around the Northwest. Like my dad would get us these buckets in these, in these pubs and it was, uh, you know, these little skinny 14 year olds going in there trying to play, yeah. oh, wow. play stuff. And, you know, we're going to get our asses kicked, but uh, we were, we were okay. <laughs> yeah. That's a that's a hell of a hell of an entry into playing music is uh, jumping into bars when you're 13 or 14 years old. Yeah, I remember sort of uh, begging my dad to buy me beers, and he was um, he was quite good. But then he he would he would buy me a beer after the after we played. But I, like we played some you know working men's clubs around the northwest, and I, I remember one gig we'd been advertised as a uh, as a Led Zeppelin cover band, and we all kind of rocked up, and we didn't do that. I, I, even at that stage, I was writing songs, and I was like, if we're going to do this, we need to play original material. I mean, those songs, looking back, sucked. They were bad. You know, it's like <laughs> I was learning my learning my craft. 
And it was advertised on the wall. We walked in and I, I was like, guys, we're dead. Like everyone thinks we're going to be playing Zeppelin all night and it, um, <laughs> we're playing my kind of, um, I don't know, I don't know what it, what it sounded like really, but it was, uh, I, I was really into kind of Rod Stewart in the faces, I suppose. So that that was probably okay. what it sounded like. But um, yeah, and I, I look back on those times and actually we had a lot of fun and I think that's what rock and roll should be about really. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you've, uh, a lot of times you look back at those gigs and think that that's when you were doing it right. You know, yeah, man, <laughs> you're I, living I, it. You're living the, it. The gigs where I was standing on tabletops trying to play my guitar behind my head and falling off. And uh, <laughs> do you know what? It was great. <laughs> you can't do those now, and you saw like in-ear monitors, and everybody. It's got to be sort of note perfect. And actually, I, I think maybe it was something slightly cooler about playing gigs completely smashed and uh, falling off off tables. But it was it was uh. a good grounding into what I moved into later on. You know. Did you oh, ever yeah. try lessons, uh, lessons again after the early experience you had? Nah, man. I think that was that was enough for me. I remember you the, ran as far away from that as you could. Yeah, and uh, well, to be honest, as soon as I finished the lessons, I was straight back out just playing football. And I just, <laughs> you know, I was convinced I was going to be a footballer. But anybody that's ever seen me play football would know that uh, that was never going to happen. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think with with the whole kind of lessons thing, it it was about the thing I didn't like was. Was and I've probably still got that trait in me today. I don't really like being told what to do, and so the idea of music, which for me is this expression of your inner feelings and a way of getting all this stuff that's inside you out, to tie that in with a kind of lesson structure, for me at that time it didn't it didn't really fit with how I wanted to to do it. And like a lot of teenagers, you have a lot of energy and a lot of angst, and you want to get that out through playing loud music, and then. I didn't really associate that with the kind of structured approach of, of having a teacher, but maybe if I'd stuck with the lessons, I bet I'd be a better guitar player now, but who knows? <laughs> well, yeah, you, that is a, the, maybe, but you know, it also says a lot about how you get taught. I, I remember when I started, I had half hour lessons, which is easy to easily digestible for a teenager. Well, I think I was 12, 13, that age, like most of us that stick with it. Um, and I had the coolest guy because he would be, what do you want to play? It was not a classical setting. It was a, I mean, never, never did I ever think, you know, which I wish I did now. Will you teach me some scales? Will you teach me why this does this? It was all, hey, man, I want to play, uh, you know, uh, the opening to Stone Temple Pilots plush. Will you teach me that? And, and at 13, that's the coolest thing in the world. Yeah. And I didn't last long either, but, you know, uh, it did kind of like, well, we've had a lot of conversations on this podcast about that. It does seem mm-hmm. like, you know, anybody that started lessons at a young age, uh, the ones that hated it had experiences like you had. And the ones that enjoyed the lessons had a teacher that was more like, hey, what are you interested in? Uh, you know, I like this. Okay, let's go this route then. You know, kind of kind of gave the kids some, some lead in it. Yeah. I think that's it, isn't it? You've got to kind of foster this sense of excitement about it and um maybe you know i've i've taught people guitar since then and i've always i've always, when i've taught people guitar it's it's been that question you know what do you want to play and yeah. uh, it's never been a case of me trying to show off what i can do and then actually the, the, i felt a little bit like that's what that teacher did to me it was like every single week was just demolishing me showing me how good he was and that's not what <laughs> yeah. you really do as a teacher um we had, um, on my last tour, we had this young lad 
George sit on sitting on a, on a show, and he'd, he'd been a fan of mine for a couple of years. And I said, "Look, man, why don't you come down to the show and you can kind of get on stage and jam with us?" <laughs> and this awesome. guy, he's he's great. I was just like, and it was really rewarding for me and the guys to have this this lad who I think he was only twelve at the time, and he sort of like looked like me from twenty years ago. It was incredible, and um, hopefully that's an experience that he then takes away. And it, well, I know he's set up his own band now, so it's exciting for him to oh, be able to do that. So. He's caught the fever people. now. Yeah, he's definitely you. You, you, uh, you did something to that kid. His life will never be the same. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> man. Although he's trying to steal all my beer, so there you go. You know, he's out. <laughs> we, we sacked him by the end of the. No, we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Jack, tell us about that room you're in there. I see a, I see a little bit of gear behind you and a bunch of boxes. Is that your music room? Well, it's kind of my. It's actually my wife's. Uh, Art studio. So she, okay. uh, oh. I've sort of taken, <laughs> I've taken <laughs> over the half of the room with loads of guitar equipment, and uh, we've got sort of like we've just had a delivery of the, my new EP. So that, there's boxes at the back there. But my wife Liz, this is actually meant to be her her creative space, and I've sort of invaded it. But uh, <laughs> when we were in the whole COVID thing and we were in lockdown, this wasn't. I turned this into a studio, so I did a lot of recording and demoing in here. So. Um, for like eight months, this was really where I lived every single day. And so it was quite a, I've got a lot of um, fond memories of being in this space, actually writing music for my last album, The Hammer Falls. So yeah, but it, it, I wish I could turn around and say that, yeah, this is my kind of, uh, it's packed full of all this vintage guitar equipment <laughs> in the other room. So yeah. <laughs> is your wife a visual artist? She is. She makes installation work. So she uses oh, awesome. uh, recycled material in a lot of her work as well, which I think is pretty cool. She's way cooler than me. So you should you should be interviewing her. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go ahead and let our listeners hear a tune. Yeah, man. You just mentioned The Hammer Falls. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. What the track, The Hammer Falls, or the album, or... A little bit about all of it. Tell us about the album first, and then you can lead us into the actual title track. Yeah, because it sounds like there's a little interesting story there with, uh, like, there was an album first, and there was kind of a follow-up with an EP that kind of built on that or something. Yeah, man. So, The Hammer Falls album, which came out probably about five months ago now, five, six months ago, I wrote all of that when we were in that kind of lockdown period, and, like, a lot of musicians and bands, they... They couldn't tour, so what did they do? They met, they wrote music and made albums, and um, yeah, I'm really pleased with that set of songs and um, the ha- the title, the Hammer Falls, and the title track, the Hammer Falls. When I started writing it, I'd uh, really got into the series Vikings, right? And I was I was really obsessed with this whole kind of like I'm going to make a concept album about Vikings, um, <laughs> which is really Spinal Tap. Yeah, and uh, I remember the discussions <laughs> with my uh, producer and, and my band, and I, I could see in their faces they were thinking, this is a terrible idea. Uh, but th- <laughs> thankfully, I moved away from that, but that title remained. And uh, yeah, it, it's a heavy record. It's heavier than the other stuff that I've put out, which I guess is more along that kind of Southern rock, Black Crows, Blackberry Smoke sort of vibe, whereas the new album, is it, there's a lot of metal influences on there. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know... Whilst we were doing the album, I got offered the opportunity to work with Kevin Shirley, who obviously produced Iron Maiden, that sort of stuff. There's a bit of Maiden in the yeah. record as well. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting set of tracks. But yeah, the title okay. track, The Hammer Falls, is, is a good one. Yeah, and I think if I remember correctly, we usually only play a, you know, a minute and a half or two of this, but I think there's a pretty good uh, 
guitar solo about three minutes into this one. So we'll probably go, uh, we'll probably do an extended listen. <laughs> well, yeah, skip the beginning bit. Just go straight to the guitar solo. <laughs> <laughs> Soundgarden vibes on the uh, on the solo for sure. Yeah, that whole that whole feel that just had that. Yeah, I don't think uh, awesome. I don't think skipping out on those classical lessons hurt you much. <laughs> 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 nice. I like uh, those double time turnarounds. You know, it's uh they they really hit right at the right times. 
it sounds so uh, well recorded too. Yeah. I mean, the, the quality of the recording is amazing. Where did you record that? We recorded it at a place called Momentum Studios in uh, Plymouth, in uh, sort of southwest England. And um, it, it was the first time I'd made a record um, in a studio of that, that level, really. And a lot of the previous recordings were done um, really kind of in a way that was like trying to get snippets of recording time in between tour dates. Oh, yeah. So kind of recording stuff in different studios. And there's a sort of sort of charm about that. And obviously, maybe my justification when I was talking about those records was, well, you know, that's how, how Led Zeppelin did Led Zeppelin 2. It was all recording in loads of studios. But actually to to do proper pre-production on this new album, then go in and do a full block of time in a studio with the band. So we were playing and tracking the stuff live in the studio. Um, and then obviously, you know, going back and overdubbing guitar parts and all oh, that yeah. kind of stuff. Um, I think it was it, it added a different vibe to it. Now, this, is a, this is a trio, is that right? Yeah, man. So there's just the three of us. So, um, you know, part of the fun of doing all the guitar in the studio is that you can layer all these different guitar parts on. And then when you you come to do your tour rehearsals, you're like, now how the hell do I play all of this? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's just the three of us. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. You got to fill up a ton of space. Sound like you got a hell of a, a rhythm pair there with you. Yeah, man. So um, the bass guitarist, Lazarus, uh, he's he's great, man. He's a, he's a big, uh, he's actually a full-on metal fan. And I think if he was to live his dream, it would be to be in Gajira. I think that's actually the band <laughs> he, he loves the most. Although he's a big Maiden fan. And so maybe that, that kind of seeps through. But the drummer, Felipe, he's from Brazil. And... Um, yeah, he uh, he likes to hit those drums pretty hard. So I mean, it, uh, yeah, like, yeah. I remember the first gig I did with Felipe, where you're kind of walking off like, man, I can't really hear out of this ear anymore. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you got that going on, man. The ringy ear. Yeah, who, who mastered that for you? Uh, who mastered? Well, we used a place called Star Delta, which is again in Plymouth in England, and they've done uh, mastering for a lot of people, like. Um, how I heard about them was through uh, Noel Gallagher, I think, had some stuff mastered through them. So that was kind of how I, I, I heard about them. But uh, again, the mastering was a really important process. And I, in with my previous two solo albums, you know what? I never really thought about this stuff. It was more to do with, you know, I let's record it quickly, get it out there, and then move on to the next thing. Whereas with this record, we took a lot of time over the mastering. I actually had it mastered once, got it back, and I didn't like it. I didn't like the mastering, then paid to have it completely redone, um, which at the time, I think, yeah, a lot of people were saying, man, you're wasting a lot of money here. But um, I think it was worth it to get it sounding just as I wanted it to sound. So, yeah. Sounds great. Yeah, so what uh, what did you not like when you heard the original master? And was it a different company? It was a different company, yeah. And so I changed the mastering engineer. Um, it was to do with dynamics, actually. It felt like... Okay. Um, Wasn't a tonal issue? Not necessarily. It, it felt like... It felt like it had been... Well, there's two things. It felt like it had been mastered too, too loud. So when I got the vinyl um, test pressings as well, I just didn't think they sounded that great because it felt like the the volume had been pushed so high on it that the whole 
thing, which is a, it's a full-on complicated rock record. And I'd heard a lot of rock records over the last couple of years that I thought, man, like the vinyl sounds, sounds terrible. Like they've, mm-hmm. they've pushed the volume at the expense of any form of kind of tonal quality. And so you, I was, I got really into this whole thing when we were in the kind of lockdown period about reading about how to master things well for vinyl. And so that's kind of where I came out with it. So I ended up actually using a different company for the vinyl mastering. And then I used Star Delta for the digital and the CD. Um, but I think it was the right decision and pay, paying attention to the, to those elements. You know, you spend eight months in a studio recording and doing different things because that's kind of how long it took really in the end once I'd done all of the overdubs and everything. And you can't rush the end point. I mean, Kevin, I read an interview with Kevin Shirley prior to me working with him on, on this new EP where he was talking about his like, um, not fear. What, what's the kind of phrasing of it? Like almost hatred of mastering engineers that would, he'd send a mix through and then they'd just destroy his mix. Um, and so there was a, there was part of me that was sort of conscious of that with this and get, and Star Delta who, um, you know, have worked with some big names. Um, I think they did a really good job in the end. Do you feel like they kind of kept it true to what you heard in the room, the original day when you guys recorded it and, uh, uh, that kind of helped the process along. Yeah, I mean, I think it sounds. It sounds. I I always do like the car test where I go out in my car. Ah, and play yeah, it and, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a sound we all know best. Yeah. Well, yeah. absolutely, man. And I, I, you know, when I when I heard the original masters, I was like, this all the power that I was hearing in that studio in the control room when we were recording this stuff has gone. Like, what's happened? And um, went out in the car, drove around for a bit, and I just thought, this sounds really flat. So when I got the new Masters through, you know, I got it really cranked up in the car, and it was like, yeah, okay, this is what I was after. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm not to the extent, you know, like Neil Young, where he's talking about the kind of going into the real detail of this stuff and being, mm-hmm. a, you know, trying to get the best possible kind of quality. But it, it is important, you know. You want it to sound oh, yeah. as close as it did to how it sounded in that room when you're recording. And hopefully we've achieved something like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, the drums and the bass, you know, both both real punchy, but they're also, uh, you know, there's also a smoothness and just a tightness that sound, I thought sounded great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, those guys have played together for a long time, actually, Laz and Felipe, prior to playing with me. And... um it was quite funny how they got involved with me, actually. It was to do with, um, I was doing like a video shoot in North London and uh, the, the original drummer who played on my last album, first album, he just rang me up and said, I can't make it down to the video shoot. And I was like, well, I can't do a, I can't do a video without the drummer. Like, it's going to look, it's going to look <laughs> stupid. You know, I got a director and this location books and all this stuff. And then I, I got given this phone number of Felipe and then rang him up and said, you know, can you come down? And he, in his really kind of strong Brazilian accent, said, yeah, yeah, I'll be down there. To, and I met him and you know, he said, you know, he said, I'll learn the track tonight. And, and, and he said, I, I'm a good drummer. I can I guarantee you I'm a good drummer. I said, mate, I don't care if you're a good drummer. I said, just as long as you look cool in the video. And I, <laughs> and I've been on your Facebook and you look pretty rock and roll. So yeah, we'll see you tomorrow. And, uh, <laughs> Then he, he said, well, if you're looking for a bass player, then this guy's available. He's uh, played with me for two or three years. And so getting that rhythm section in place for the next couple of albums was pretty useful. 
Oh man, I could imagine that's you come, uh, yeah. come together rhythm section. That's that's awesome. So you picked them up at the same time, or yeah, or it's, uh, a package to them. Well, that was part of the benefit of, with it as well. Was they were, you know, they were really committed to it, but also um, it was through Felipe that I toured Brazil a couple of years ago. So he kind of hooked me up with promoters over there. So like from coming from a really small town in the northwest of England, where you know. I used to play like these tiny bar gigs where I was going to get my ass kicked every night. And then to go from that to like, I was thinking about that scene in the blues brothers where they, they end up playing the theme <laughs> tune to rawhide over and over again. But it was like that, <laughs> I was playing in bars where they were shouting out, they wanted Oasis. So I was playing Oasis night after night, but um, <laughs> it did feel quite kind of special going over to Brazil. And that was all down to Felipe. So yeah, it was a good one. Great hookup. You talked about songwriting a little bit, and it seems like uh, it seems like you're pretty busy with that. Because so your your first album was what 2013? Is that right? Something like that. Yeah, I did like this um, this album that I recorded when I just met my wife. Actually, we went over to Italy. Her family are Italian, so we spent kind of the summer in the, the Italian mountains, and I recorded it all on an iPad. So that I did this kind of real DIY thing. Uh, so that's mm-hmm. what I mean. That journey from doing that through to kind of doing this latest album in a, in a proper studio. Um, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been a kind of process really that, you know, when I do my next album, I'll record it at Momentum again. I think I've enjoyed being <laughs> in, in the posh studio with loads of really quality, uh, you know, Marshall amps and orange amps that are, you know, making my records sound better. But yeah, the first album came out 2013. And one of the things with that was really that when I listened to that record, I hate my voice on that record, so I can't really listen to it. But I, I, it was a process of exploring songwriting, and that's what I've always been interested in. I've, you know, I, I play guitar and I sing, but actually, the root of what I do is songwriting, and I, that's what I get a real buzz out of is that exploration of being able to communicate in a way that you can't necessarily do in, in a conversation or whatever else through song, and so. Um, that's they're the artists that really inspire me, man. It's like uh, you know, it's songwriters more than anyone else, really. Mm-hmm. I, I was looking on Spotify. It seems like you had like several albums and a few singles thrown in through. There's quite a bit of music that's come out since that time. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose I've tried to do an album a year and then sort of keep up that momentum. And uh, prior to COVID, it was primarily putting an album out a year because then you'd put it out and you'd tour it, and the, the main income that I was I was gaining at that point was was via touring. So, you know, you stick out an album in kind of February and then the rest of the year you're you're plugging that record and then record a new album at the end of the year and put another one out. And so I never thought about it in terms of work ethic or anything like that. But it was just about over the course of the year, you accumulate 10 or 12 new songs and you go in the studio and record it. And it mm-hmm. I was about keeping it interesting because I wanted to go out and play shows and not be playing the same songs all the time. So um, COVID kind of broke that up a little bit and and everything halted in terms of the touring. Um, but yeah, I like to keep busy. I, I mean, I've, I like collaborating with other people as well. So there's other records that I've played on. Um, you know, I've never understood that thing where, I, you know, if, an, if a band puts out a record and then they don't do anything else for five years, I, it's like, man, like, I need, it's not a case of wanting to work quicker. It's just about being excited about creating new music for me. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. So what do you, what do you have uh, going on now? What's, what's next with you? 
So I'm about to start a, um, a UK tour, which is going to kick off in about a month. So we're about to start doing rehearsals for that. But just before I start that tour, I've, I've got some more studio time books. So I'm working on, starting to work on the next record. So we've got about five or six songs that we're going to track and, and get cracking with that. And uh, yeah, and then we, I'm going over to uh, Europe in the new year. Just had that confirmed this afternoon, actually. I'm going over to Spain in the new year, oh, awesome. doing some stuff over there. Uh, I love going to Spain. I've toured there loads of times. And we shot a music video a few years ago there, which was at the location where they shot The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Um, oh, wow. So that the final scene of The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, where they, they have the duel, where you've got um, you know Clint Eastwood and Levon Cleef, and they kind of, you know, uh, they take each other out. Or no, Levon Cleef bites the bullet, doesn't he? But um, it was great to just go back to that location and shoot a music video there and uh, pretend I was Clint Eastwood for the day. <laughs> you know, failing, obviously, at that. But uh, yeah, heading back to Spain. And then I'm I'm coming back to... I did I did some shows at NAM recently over in um, oh, wow. Anaheim. So I'm coming back to LA and Anaheim in April, I think. So yeah, just just touring and trying to do some gigs overseas next year because a lot of this last couple of years has been UK-based, obviously, because of what's happened. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. If you make it to Louisville, Kentucky, man, we'll we'll put you in a gig somewhere. We'll find one for you. I don't know, man. You might be be seeing that booze disappear very quickly. Let's (laughs) go. That's okay. We've got plenty of it. Yeah, it'd be fun. This is where they make booze, man. We're good. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're less than 30 miles from just about every distillery that exists. Yeah. Oh, incredible. That's <laughs> dangerous. dangerous, though. Dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I got, so I, got, I do got a question about, you were talking about vinyl mastering and, and getting that right. Do you think when, when the vinyl mastering's right, that mix is probably like where everything sits the best? Because I would imagine with vinyl, um, a lot of times it gets jacked up to get maximum, like you said, just output. Because a lot of times, you know, if you have a vinyl, small vinyl thing, it doesn't have a lot of uh, audio output. At least they didn't. They do now. You kind of got options. But I've got a lot this little traveler. But anyway, do you think like once that mix is set, if you take that mix, that softer mix, and put it on anything else, does it translate into what is probably the best overall mix you have? Yeah, so I mean that—that's kind of how we did it in terms of the masters for this, and the the way that we did it was the the vinyl was the first thing that we we produced. So, um, you know, that was the real focus for me because you know that's okay. how I buy music still. And I when I was I remember when I was a teenager and I was buying vinyl in Manchester in England. Like you could pick up. I remember buying the whole of the Zeppelin back catalog for. For nothing. Nobody was buying nothing. And they were like, my friends at school were laughing at me that they were all buying CDs and actually then mini disc. And I was buying all these, you know, dusty old vinyls, um, you know, buying like, I don't know, like the band and the Almond Brothers and all this stuff. Oh, and they yeah, were like, you know, why didn't you buy the new Blur album on CD, man? Um, <laughs> but for me, that sound, I think music actually is like a time machine, right? And actually the sound of vinyl takes me back to that feeling of being, you know, 13 years old and discovering all these, these great acts. And so it's not necessarily the same albums that I'm listening to, but, you know, it's almost like it, it, it just, tr- I travel back in time to that feeling and that emotion. But, you know, I listen obviously to a lot of stuff digitally because when we're traveling around in the tour van, 
I haven't got a vinyl player in the tour van so <laughs> on Apple Music. But, um, you know, I, I do think that, that that is the kind of benchmark for me still. And I'm sure loads of people would disagree with that, but the vinyl is the, is the kind of number one for me, really. Do you still have uh, quite a vinyl collection? I do, yeah. In, in the other, I've, I've actually been... Um, <laughs> My my wife was saying to me the other day because like Neil Young's been putting out all these albums over the last two years because obviously he's been off the road like everyone else, but he's been putting out all of these kind of performance series vinyls and I just keep buying them and um, and she's like <laughs> like how many how many copies of this song have you got and I was like I, I don't know I've probably got about sixty Neil Young albums but I could listen to you know uh, Cinnamon Girl in many different ways and it, I still get the same buzz out of listening to it so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> let's listen to another tune let's uh, tell us a little bit about what doesn't kill you ah yeah this was um, this was the last track that we did on the record and um, it was supposed to be this sort of like this is going to sound really pretentious and crazy but I I never really set about trying to write a kind of, um, you know, Alma Brothers type jam sort of song where it took you in loads of different directions and it took you on a journey through the guitar playing. And so that's what it, the aim of it was to write this like 18 minute track and actually it ended up getting edited down to about six minutes. And there was loads <laughs> more stuff in there originally that actually probably was pretty boring and tedious. Um, but yeah, it ended up kind of morphing into this cross between a sort of Foo Fighters song with a bit of Maiden and that kind of stuff. But that track is is the track that um, sort of got me involved with with Kevin Shirley. So that was the song that he mixed initially. And so for the new four track EP, which is, is four songs mixed by Kevin, that's the kind of that was the single that came out off it a few um, weeks ago, and. Um, it's the one that I enjoy playing live the most, actually, because it's it's uh, all about the guitar. There's about five guitar solos in there, so um, <laughs> you know it's one of those where you can you can stand on the front of the stage pulling all of your rock god poses, <laughs> sending your you know Jimmy Page in "Song Remains the Same" for five minutes. But yeah, I think it's a good song. So I, I think there needs to be a. Uh a release of the 18-minute version. Ah, <laughs> oh, that would be killer. Nah, it, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> I remember sitting around in the control room and uh, the, the engineer, uh, a bloke called Josh Norton Cox, at, at Momentum sort of wheeling around in his seat and going, I think we need to edit this down a bit. Because uh, a lot of the songs <laughs> on the record are quite short. They're quite poppy. There's a song there called Halo, which is like three minutes long, really yeah. aimed at the radio. And then you got the last or second to last track on the album and it just went on and on and on. And he said, you know, what you don't want is for people to turn it off. And I was like, that's a good <laughs> point, man. And he said, I know that you're going for this thing, but he said, maybe keep that for the live record. If you do a live record, you do the expanded version when you do it live. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's check it out. What doesn't kill you? What doesn't kill you? Only makes you strong. Get on the chain and see it through. I 
Oh yeah. Well, Jack, what's your uh, what's your setup look like? You, you you typically play a Les Paul, right? Yeah, all of the guitars pretty much on the record were Les Pauls, um, and then. I mainly use Marshalls and I've used DSLs really live for like 20 years now. So I got one of the, I suppose the JCM 2000s when they first came out in the UK, I suppose that was about 97, 98. And I bought a secondhand one around then, maybe about 2000 bought one. Um, and so I've always used them and it's it, Marshalls factory is just up the road from where I live. So if I ever have like a, an issue with an amp, I, I just drive up there and they fix it, which is really oh, nice. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's handy. Yeah. So, you know, there's kind of always always this feeling of like, I quite like going to the Marshall factory and just going in there and, uh, you know, just staring at all the Zach Wild guitars and that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, but yeah, for the for the album, you know, you use different gear in the studio and, you know, I, was, I, I had my arm bent and I ended up using a Telecaster on some of this stuff, which, uh, I you know, I, I never really... Maybe I was just really stubborn about it in in the past, being like, I'm a Les Paul guy. Da, da, da. Um, so we tried loads of different stuff, uh, strat, strats on certain tracks and different amps, orange amps. And so, yeah, that was quite an experience. But live, it's definitely Les Paul and Marshall. I tried to a guy a couple of years ago when he, he was using uh, Kemper amps, which are amazing amplifiers. And um, he was saying to me, you know, he said, you know, if you get a Kemper amp, you can make it sound like a Marshall amp. And I said, yeah, well, I can just buy a Marshall amp, though. <laughs> I thought, you know, like, why would I? What? That's just stupid. Um, so, yeah. Um, I, I think that's, it, you know, there's a lot of guitarists, obviously, who use Les Pauls and Marshalls. So um, it's a tried and tested combo, isn't it? Definitely is. I, I watched the video for uh, What Doesn't Kill You Today. And you mentioned the bass player being an Iron Maiden fan. And I think I remember he had a t-shirt on that video. <laughs> Do you know uh, what? Iron Maiden t-shirt. That was really funny because um, it's kind of like, uh, you know, you, you don't really wear other bands' t-shirts in your videos. And I remember setting <laughs> <laughs> up for the video shoot and we got all this. We hired a, it's a prison in uh, Bristol. So it's like this distribution. Oh, wow. Pretty cool. And then Laz turned up with this Iron Maiden t-shirt on. And I think Laz was quite proud of the fact that Kevin Shirley had done like this song and he wanted to kind of celebrate that. And I think the new Maiden record had just come out. And uh, my manager, Wes, was like, yeah, I'm not really sure you should be wearing that in the video. And Laz, Laz isn't really a guy to mess with. I mean, he's training to be like an MMA fighter at the moment. So. There you go. <laughs> I was like, if you want to have an argument with, with Laz about this T-shirt, do it. But I ain't getting involved. So we say the Iron Maiden t-shirt stayed on. <laughs> so Jack, our, uh, our listeners that want to follow you a little more closely, uh, where can they find your stuff? Where can they find you on the socials, website, anything like that? Yeah, man. So if they just look up Jack J. Hutchinson on all the different social media platforms, it will come up with all of my stuff. And if they want to find tour dates and that kind of thing, if they just go to my website, which is jackjhutchinsonmusic.com. It's got all of that cool stuff on there. Cool. Man, we appreciate you talking with us the last 45 minutes or yeah, so. Yeah, thank you. I tell you what, I feel very thirsty now. You watch the guys <laughs> talking that, he's making me incredibly jealous. <laughs> well, you're into the evening now. You go, yeah, go you can it. actually, yeah, go for it. <laughs> I'm going to hit it hard and do some artwork in the studio, I think. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> We're going to go out with uh, Days of Thunder. Tell us a little bit about that. 
But you know what? Uh, I've been, I've done a few interviews this week, and everyone's like, "So why have you named the track after a Tom Cruise film?" And I was like, <laughs> "That was definitely not a conscious thing." And I I remember seeing that when I was a kid, the film Days of Thunder, but it was nothing to do with with the film. But unfortunately, everybody thinks it is. Um, and if I had a massive budget, actually, when we did the video for that track, I would have hired loads of uh, you know race cars and done a sort of recreation uh, NASCAR thing. But you know. Didn't do it. Well, maybe they'll do something like they did with Top Gun and, you know, you can be the track, title track. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's, my, what's my next track going to be? It's going to be called like uh, Mission Impossible 7 or something. <laughs> <laughs> the track's just like an upbeat, uh, you know, upbeat tune and it kind of came about where Kevin had done three songs and then he if something had happened where he, he couldn't fly out to America, I think, and then he, he had a couple of extra days and he, he said, you know, I can do another song if you want me to mix another song. And I, um, I said to the guys, I was like, I've got this song that I've, we didn't record as part of the album sessions. Why don't we just go in the studio tomorrow, just do it in one day and then send it over to him to mix. And so we did, we went down there sort of 8am, set everything up. And I, like, that's not how we did the new album. Like the album was a slow, like to be really considered about it. And we just smashed this song out. Um, and I was writing the lyrics in the in the bloody vocal booth because I'd not. Oh, wow. wow. So, uh, there's a lot of energy in it that I think is unlike some of the other stuff. And it's quite raw. Like that, like we, we we did maybe two takes of the guitars. So there's a few glitches on the guitars. Usually you'd kind of nowadays polish that stuff out, but maybe it harks back to how uh, records ah. used to be made. So I, I like it. It's a good tune. Well, it, it kind of is a throwback to what you're talking about earlier, you know, when, uh, when you clean it, everything up, maybe it's not as nice as it was when you were, you know, 15 years old and in those old dab bars trying to survive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and trying, I mean, I once got uh, beat up for work because I wear, um, you know, cowboy hats a lot of the time. I once got beaten up for wearing a cowboy hat after a gig. And that was like, what? I was like, all that Who beat did, up a 15 year old. <laughs> all that did was convince me that I'm going to always wear hats because I was like <laughs> this, so even now 20 years later I'm like this dude who wanted to kick my ass for wearing a hat I still wear hats all the time because it's like it's a bit of an F you to this dude who uh, did, took a real um, displeasure to me wearing cowboy hats I think it was it was to do with me wearing a cowboy hat indoors in a bar and he didn't like it but uh, whatever it's a cool rock and roll story isn't it I suppose <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks again, Jack, man. We've enjoyed yeah, it. thank you, Jack. Oh, thanks, it. guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. 